Well, we will start our uh, sermon time. Uh, Our first scripture reading from the Old Testament comes from Genesis. I'll be reading the last verse of chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 3. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heaven and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished this work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Our New Testament reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 2. And again, the last verse, verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And our sermon text from today is, no surprise, from Exodus. Uh, I'll read the first 21 verses of chapter 5. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go. A three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of this land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. With the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourself, whether you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily tasks each day. It's when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of the Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like that? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is on your own people. But he said, You were idle, you were idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you shall still deliver the same number of bricks. 
the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. All right. So uh, we are continuing our study of the book of Exodus. Uh, and today we begin the, uh, basically the second act of the Exodus drama. The, four, the first four chapters focus on the problem uh, of the oppression of the Israelites by the Egyptians. And in that section, we learn that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites' ancestors, had decided to act and save the people specifically through this person that Yahweh called Moses. So that's the first act. Now we enter chapter five. And so uh, this is the story of Moses and uh, Moses uh, beginning this process of releasing the Egyptians from Pharaoh. And so really this is uh, this chapter five is Moses's first day on the job. The first day is his job as the liberator called by Yahweh to free his people. Now, um, if you think about where the story's been, uh, when Moses was last in Egypt, twice he had tried to help the Israelites and try twice uh, his efforts had ended in failure. And before leaving, uh, one of the Israelites had asked Moses, uh, who made you a ruler and judge over us? So that was uh, the last thing uh, Moses heard uh, when he was in Egypt. Now Moses has returned. And uh, he's different now. He's no longer a member of the Egyptian court. Uh, as we learned uh, last week and, uh, you know, one of the, or a couple weeks ago in one of the craziest uh, stories ever, uh, Moses has been transformed. Uh, you know, before his identity was in question, now he comes back uh, fully uh, as a full Israelite. Uh, he comes with the authority uh, called as a prophet by God and an authority that has been confirmed by the elders of the Israelites. So as we begin chapter five, Moses is off to a pretty good start. We're pretty optimistic about what's going to happen. Question of Moses's identity and authority have been answered. Remember when uh, God called him, that was a lot of what Moses was concerned about. You know, who am I supposed to say uh, sent me? What is his name? Uh, how are the uh, people supposed to believe me? And of course, God gives him the sign. So, so these questions of identity or authority have been answered. And so now Moses and his brother Aaron appear before Pharaoh demanding that Pharaoh release the Israelites so that they can leave Egypt to observe a religious feast. And if you turn back to uh, chapter 3 and verse 18, uh, God had told Moses that that's what he was supposed to tell Pharaoh. Say, uh, said, um, say the following, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Now, there are a couple of interesting points about Moses' request. First, God's words were much more polite. Uh, Moses' speech to Pharaoh is more demanding. He uh, actually, in his initial statement, omits that the feast would only be for three days. And second, you know, 
why anyway, uh, you know, you're probably asking this question right now. Why does Moses, uh, why does God want Moses to ask Pharaoh for just a three-day break? I mean, isn't the goal of the Exodus a complete and unconditional release from Egyptian slavery? Uh, And the answer is we're not really sure uh, what is going on here. You know, it's possible this is a ruse. Uh, In other words, the plan was for the Israelites to leave Egypt, to go to Mount Sinai for the feast, and just not to come back. Uh, now, this would not have been the first time in the Exodus that, uh, that the Israelites had deceived the Egyptians. If you remember, the midwives concocted the story about uh, how fast the Hebrew women uh, gave birth, and that's why they couldn't kill the male babies carrying out Pharaoh's orders. Um, now, we sort of view these kind of things, these kind of deceptions negatively, but in the ancient world, outsmarting someone, especially someone of high authority like the Pharaoh, would not have been viewed as negatively. It would have actually been viewed as clever and a positive thing. Uh, So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that Pharaoh's refusal to honor such a simple request demonstrates his intransigentness. Intransigence. As king of all Egypt, Pharaoh is also the high priest of Egypt. He has a religious office as well. And so, you know, Pharaoh understands the importance of religious obligations. Uh, uh, Part of his job was to maintain the necessary rituals for his people to ensure that the kingdom of Egypt was protected and that uh, order was maintained. Uh, You know, so... um, he should have been open to the Israelites' concern. Remember, you know, people back then uh, didn't really have this uh, exclusive idea of gods. They acknowledged the fact that there were many gods and that people had an obligation to them. So really, Pharaoh saying no is kind of, uh, kind of weird. Um, Moses' explanation in verse 3 that Yahweh might inflict pestilence upon the Israelites if they did not make the appropriate sacrifices should have made sense to Pharaoh. Now, another interesting point is Moses is about Moses' speech to Pharaoh is the phrase, let my people go. Now, that's, that's really famous. I mean, that's the thing we know from the, from, from the Exodus. And of course, you know, if you've ever seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, who can forget Charlton Heston, you know, in his like distinctive voice, you know, saying, uh, you know, let my people go. Uh, it, it, you know, it just really kind of uh, is what you associate with uh, the Exodus. Unfortunately, it's not quite the best translation. Uh, it's more accurately translated as send my people away. And I think it's important to talk about this and kind of see what the difference between let my people go and send my people away is, because this is a phrase that occurs over and over. In fact, it's used seven times in this next section of the Exodus as Moses confronts Pharaoh. And the reason it's important, the difference uh, is send my people away is another instance in which God is giving Pharaoh a chance to do the right thing. God does not simply want the Israelites released. God wants Pharaoh to recognize Yahweh's authority and actively send the people away. Uh, That's part of what uh, God is trying to do here. Yahweh is trying to show the Israelites in the world, really, that even Pharaoh, as powerful as he is, the leader of, uh, you know, the greatest kingdom of the world at that time, uh, is under Yahweh's authority. 
And of course, this whole section really is a question of authority. Who is really in charge? Who is really the one with power? That is the conflict here. And Pharaoh shows us this by the answer uh, that he gives. He believes himself to have all the authority and power over the Israelites. So if you look at Pharaoh's response in verse 2, who is Yahweh that I should listen, that I should listen to his voice to send Israel away? I do not know Yahweh. Pharaoh's question, in a way, is the same as Moses' question was earlier when Moses encountered Yahweh at the burning bush. Who is Yahweh? Uh, Really, that's the question that's basically underlying the whole book of Exodus. That's more or less what Exodus is trying to answer, to tell us what is God? Who is God? What is God like? What does God mean? It's one thing to say that there's this powerful God. But what do we know about that God? That is uh, what we hope to discover as we work through the book of Exodus. Uh, Unlike Pharaoh, though, Moses actually waited for a response. And what Moses learned, uh, you know, as we talked about, was not exactly an answer, but it was an invitation for Moses to experience Yahweh. Remember, knowing isn't just about knowing facts in the ancient world. It's actually about like an, an intimate knowledge. It's more, uh, it would be more uh, to think of it as an experience, an experience that comes about through a relationship. Now, what Moses did know about Yahweh and what he learned about Yahweh at the burning bush was that Yahweh was passionately devoted to his people. And so Moses is joining Yahweh to experience more fully who who Yahweh is as he delivers his people that he cares so passionately about. Pharaoh, uh, of course, shows no interest in knowing Yahweh. He's just dismissive. Uh, He soon will learn uh, that uh, Yahweh all too well. And that's really the point of the next 10 chapters in Exodus is that Pharaoh knows Yahweh. However, as we have seen, Yahweh has been at work among his people all along. Their great uh, number and strength is a testament to that. The reason they are being exploited is because their numbers and strength pose a threat to the Egyptians. That's how the book of Exodus starts off. And all of the numerous attempts to control their numbers have failed. Uh, It should have been obvious who Yahweh was, that Yahweh was involved in this, uh, this blessing and abundance and fertility among the Israelites, yet Pharaoh is blind to it all. Uh, So Yahweh has been at work and uh, among the people and Pharaoh doesn't acknowledge it. Uh, and in fact, we kind of see some irony here because in verse five, it says Pharaoh even notes that the people are many. Uh, so right there, Pharaoh is kind of ironically acknowledging who Yahweh is. Now, as Pharaoh continues his response to Moses, he once again reveals his foolishness. For a ruler like Pharaoh, it would have absolutely made sense to sponsor the God of his, like, incredibly large workforce. As I noted earlier, uh, you know, he's a religious figure. He should understand religious obligations. And he uh, he should know it was in his best interest to allow them to uh, fulfill their obligations. Uh, Widespread pestilence among your workforce would not be good for your building projects. 
So again, we see Pharaoh's refusal exposes Pharaoh as an unwise ruler. So we're kind of continuing the theme that we already saw in the first two chapters of Exodus. Um, Now, there's this really cool wordplay in verse 4. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And, you know, what I want you to notice here is just a couple of things. Uh, first, notice Pharaoh is not referred to as Pharaoh. He's, he's referred to as the king of Egypt rather than, like, like I said, his usual title of Pharaoh. And then the Pharaoh asks why Moses and Aaron are taking the people away from their work. And the word here that's used for takeaway in Hebrew sounds like pretty much exactly like the word for Pharaoh. So, uh, in other words, we can see, uh, you know, Pharaoh's jealousy being being demonstrated here as he sees Moses and Aaron attempting to out-Pharaoh him, okay? You know, he's the Pharaoh, but they actually want to Pharaoh the people, uh, Moses and Aaron do. So, you know, we see uh, a little bit of uh, Pharaoh's insecurity here. And so ultimately what Pharaoh does is he doubles down on his oppression of the Israelites. And, and here in his deviousness, I think Pharaoh is actually quite smart. I mean, I think this is a really good play because from now on, the Israelites, uh, you know, he, he imposes this uh, additional uh, problem uh, for them. Uh, they have to provide their own straw for their brick making. And this is a pretty big deal because if you look at verse 12, it tells us that the people were scattered all throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for the straw. So, you know, apparently this was no easy thing to do. Uh, The Israelites had to comb all through Egypt uh, for enough building material. And so that gives you kind of an idea about what this increased oppression meant. But, But by doing this, Pharaoh is hoping to crush, you know, this little spark of rebellion, you know. And by doing so, what he does is he drives a wedge Uh, between Aaron and Moses and the people. You know, the leaders have asked for this break. And so Pharaoh has responded by making their lives worse. You know, so so what he does is he uh, has uh, tried to uh, distance the two, you know, to make Moses and Aaron look bad in the people's eyes. And of course, you know, as the chapter goes on, we see that it has this desired effect. The people, the, specifically the overseers of the Israelites, uh, turn against Moses. You know, they say, why have you made us a stink before the Pharaoh? Um, more oppression, more misery, and a bunch of angry Israelites uh, really is what the result of Moses' first day on the job is. Uh, so, you know, it hasn't been probably quite the first day that Moses was hoping for. Now, Moses had been reminded of the, uh, you know, I, I think Moses, when he does this, he probably would have started flashing back to the last time he tried to make things uh, better in Egypt. And uh, he would have uh, seen, you know, probably been uh, kind of bothered or like upset because it's like, oh no, the same thing is happening again. Uh, so, you know, this is, Moses is pretty upset. And as we're going to find out next week, uh, he's going to express that. It has not been a, a good first day. Um, so that's what's happening here. Uh, that's sort of a summary of the text, just to give you an idea about what's going on. But for now, what I want us to do, what I want to focus the rest of the sermon on is, uh, 
is to look at verse 5. I want us to look at verse 5. Pharaoh says, Behold, the people of the land are many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Okay? The people of the land are many. Remember, that's a result of God and God's work. But you make them rest from their burdens. And so, you know, Pharaoh is saying he has this amazing workforce. You know, they're building storage facilities and uh, for him, which is, you know, what he wants. Uh, but Moses wants to make them rest. And so the conflict here in this verse is that Pharaoh wants production. You know, he wants store cities, but Moses wants rest. And what I find interesting about this statement by Pharaoh is this word rest. Because it's not the usual word for rest. Uh, if in Hebrew, the word that's used for rest here is Shabbat. Okay, Shabbat. Okay, and that's like a really important word. Okay, and I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. So here's a question for you. Don't have Caden here. Um, if we want to understand Exodus, Miles, what's a good thing we would do? What would we Understand Genesis. That's right. Excellent. Uh, We would want to understand Genesis. And it turns out that the word Shabbat is a pretty uh, special word in Genesis. It's only used three times in Genesis. Three times. Uh, And this is the first time it's been used in Exodus. So it's kind of a special word. Uh, and it's found in, in, in three very key points in, ex, in, in Genesis. Um, so, no surprise, because, uh, you know, you heard our uh, Old Testament reading from Genesis. If we look uh, at the creation story in Genesis, we read, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. So that's that word, Shabbat. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested, again Shabbat, from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, the creation account in Genesis 1 is kind of, there's like lots of really neat stuff about it, but one of the things that's really uh, interesting about it is it presents God kind of like as a worker, like as a laborer, like as a human laborer. Uh, It uses like verbs that are often used uh, to describe like things that people do. God forms, he shapes, he makes everything. And he does so each day, okay, you know, the famous seven days of of Genesis 1. And at the end of each day, it notes that there was night and there was day, okay? Uh, And it's kind of weird that it would do that. You know, people have pointed this out for a long time because, you know, people always try to read this passage literally. And, of course, that's not how you're supposed to do it. But, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to get into that. But the point is, it's kind of weird that it specifically mentions day and night when, like, the moon and and the sun wasn't even created until the fourth day. Okay, so there's like three days where like it mentions that, you know, that was day one and there was night, there was day and like there's no sun yet. Okay, Um, so what's going on here? You know, it's kind of weird. And even more curious is just this whole idea of God resting on the seventh day in the first place. I mean, like God was tired. I mean, that's kind of weird. However, the point of this is that as humans, we are created in God's image. And as God's image, we are meant to imitate God 
in the creation that he has created for us. That's the logic of Genesis. We are meant to form and fill the earth just as God had formed and filled the universe. So all of this language of working and rest is giving to us in this form, not so much to tell us about God or some sort of limitation about God, but to set a pattern for how we humans are to carry out our work and purpose based on God's divine pattern. And this includes this idea of rest, which is specifically tied to the seventh day. Now, there are a few things that are really interesting that you can really nerd out on about this because it's kind of quite extraordinary. First, the Sabbath, the seventh day, is the first thing that's declared holy in the Bible. Okay? God makes and forms everything, and he says it's good. He says this is good. But it's the seventh day, this particular piece of time, that is marked off and pronounced holy. Okay, so, so holiness, you know, kind of like this old school, like ancient religious uh, uh, idea that's like super important and meant something to, you know, them. Uh, but just to kind of give you an idea about what holiness means, it means something that is set apart from common use and sanctified because it belongs to the divine realm. It's kind of transferred out of this world and somehow connected to the divine. In other words, the seventh day is not common. It's not an everyday kind of thing. It belongs to the divine. And what is revolutionary about this practice is that it's very different from the way everyone else was doing God and religion in the ancient world. So, so there were lots of ideas about holiness or sanctified things. Like I said, it's very common. And it's clear from Genesis 1 that the language of Genesis 1 is actually intended as an alternative and a challenge to the other uh, creation myths that were popular in the ancient world. Uh, Typically, after a god defeated his enemy, he took up a throne and he would build a temple or maybe he would uh, take uh, residence on a mountain and he would declare it holy and then take up rest. So rest was associated with ruling. Because all the enemies of the God had been defeated, and now the God was free to administer the kingdom. In the Genesis story, what's different is God declares a particular piece of time holy rather than a particular space. The Sabbath is kind of is also kind of peculiar. You know, picking the seventh day is peculiar because the seventh day is actually apart from creation. It's not linked to nature the way like other uh, times uh, that were important in the ancient world were linked to nature. Like there might be a harvest uh, festival, you know, or, uh, you know, something might be correlated with an equinox or a solstice or a moon phase. All of those have a natural basis, but the seventh day really has no natural basis. Uh, there's nothing, uh, it's, there, there's nothing in nature that is significant about the seventh day. It's just declared uh, the seventh day is important because God alone makes it so. There's nothing about nature that makes it stand apart. So it's really interesting. And more important, though, I think, is that, is that humans participate in this Sabbath day, in this rest. In other words, the rest is not just for the conquering God. God's people join God in Sabbath rest And they do so in anticipation for the time when their ordained work, their God-ordained work, would be complete. 
The Sabbath, in other words, is anticipating eternity. It anticipates an end. It anticipates a conclusion. And that means that life and everything about it is moving toward an end. That there is a story, a story that's being worked to completion that we are all part of. And by uh, celebrating the Sabbath, by honoring the Sabbath, by uh, setting apart this, uh, the Sabbath as holy, we participate in that idea because God wants us to understand that. You know, for most cultures, history is cyclical. Chaos gives way to order, but chaos is never really completely defeated. And it eventually rises again and reigns until it's defeated again by another hero god and order is reestablished. That's how almost every other culture in the ancient world saw the uh, you know, grand arc of history. However, for the Israelites, every event is important and significant because it leads to a conclusion, an end to the story where God is eventually setting everything right. And it goes by different names in the Old Testament. The prophets talk about this all the time. They use phrases like the day of the Lord, uh, the age to come. But the important point is that, that what is going to happen is that everything is moving toward a conclusion. God will establish shalom upon the earth, upon the world. And humans and God will at last be able to live lives of abundance and flourishing and harmony with creation and with one another and with God. And that means that all events are significant because they point to a future. And that future is a future of hope. And it's this anticipated hope uh, that's a result in the faith in Yahweh and his purposes and promises in the world. That's what the Sabbath represents, and that's why it's holy. And so it's on the Sabbath day, it's on that day that we look forward to this, that we, we break out of our world, our world of, you know, our normal human productivity and work, and we anticipate this hope. And that is why the pharaohs of, of, of that world and this world hate it and fear it. They fear change. They fear uh, because it means an end to their oppression and exploitation. They fear it because it means they are not ultimate. And so the Sabbath points to a world without pharaohs, an end to a world built on this excuse that this is just how it is and it can never change. The Sabbath also means that there is more to life, to being human, and our purpose here than what we can produce. Pharaoh looks at the Israelites and all he sees is a means to an end, an input that results in an output. For Pharaoh, the goal of life is optimization. For Pharaoh, life is just about building more storage facilities. However, God looks at people and God sees much more than that. Yes, we are put on this earth to be productive. That is part of our purpose. We are to work and serve in this world. We are to fill the earth and subdue it. That is part of who we are and what it means to be the image of God. Yet, What the Sabbath does is tell us that we are more than that. It is not just that. We are more than a means of production. Our purpose is greater and bigger than mere output. We are built for eternity, for this end and for this conclusion. And we are built to share in this divine. We are built for a relationship with God. And the Sabbath is a down payment on that promise. So, you know, it's not going to be long before we're going to get into these sections in Exodus where there's going to be all these rules. And a lot of these rules are going to have to do with how to observe the Sabbath. Uh, All these rules were given, though, 
so we can remember these truths, these facts. They weren't meant to be uh, just uh, about, uh, about, you know, making sure we check the right boxes. It's to uh, accept the blessing and the significance of this holy day. In the New Testament, we find that the meaning of the Sabbath had been reduced by some at least to a programmatic system of rule following. Our New Testament reading from Mark is a story about that. And in that story, we find that Jesus shows a different way of understanding the Sabbath. For Jesus, it is a blessing. Jesus is recovering this idea that the Sabbath was meant for the beginning to be a blessing to people. So when Jesus is asked about the Sabbath, Jesus responds that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath and then demonstrates his authority by healing a man on that day. Here, Jesus is recovering the purpose of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about the end, the conclusion of the story in which creation is finished and the forces of chaos and evil are defeated. So for us too, Sabbath should be a blessing. It should be, rest should be something that we look forward to. It is a message that I think we desperately need in our world. It is true, you know, that we don't have it as bad as the Israelites suffering under Egyptian captivity. I I think it would be, you know, we need to say that. Uh, You know, lots of people have suffered under oppression and work at various times during the history of the world. However, we still fall prey to this tendency to view our lives as centered entirely around our ability to re- to produce we may see we may not we may need, we may see no obvious pharaoh but don't we all feel this pressure to optimize to never let up to feel bad for taking time to reflect uh, to to see you know just like going on a walk with no agenda or purpose is pointless Are we not bombarded by this message that we need to continually be building more and bigger storage facilities? How often do we define ourselves entirely by just what we do? Why, when we want to know a person, do we ask, what do we do for a living? Aren't we more than that? And the Sabbath tells us that the answer is yes, we are. We are more than producers. We are more than commodities. And the Sabbath is an announcement that we are built for something bigger and nobler and more important than that. We are built for eternity and our lives can be more than storage. So let us live out that truth. Let us think about how we can apply this idea and see ourselves as more. To see our purpose as something greater than just our work. Uh, that we are part of, uh, to, to value the relationship that we have with God, with each other, uh, with, the, with the creation itself. Because by doing so, what we are doing is practicing 